Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we usually interview policymakers, uh, professors, and business executives to talk about policy-related issues. Uh, but today, we're gonna change change it up a little bit because um, I got to know Professor Gowan's work, and I just couldn't resist uh, to invite him on on our show. Um, so, Professor Wan, you are a, a computer science professor in Stanford. You uh, did a PhD in uh, Princeton, and now you just published this book called Artful uh, Design, Technology in Search of the Sublime, which basically brings all those fascinating ideas from music to computer science to tech. Um, so it's truly a great honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And just a quick change from our usual setup. Uh, today I'll be joined by my friend Arjun Mani. So Arjun is also a sophomore rising junior uh, with me at Princeton. He lives in my hallway and is a computer science major with a particular passion for Indian classical music uh, as well as tech and societal issues. Uh, so we're going to co-host this episode uh, to interview Professor Wang together and I think it will be a great conversation ahead of us. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I'll start off Professor Wang. So you really try to explore the intersection between technology and art. Uh, many of our listeners might not be quite familiar with your creations yet, so why don't we begin by trying to define them uh, for our viewers. For example, uh, you've chosen to design by writing code and specifically writing code to produce music. And how would you define computer music? Is it just music that's entirely or somewhat computer generated or more generally music that needs a computer to be played? Well, um, I, I build things. Uh, I build tools. So those can come in the form of instruments, uh, interfaces, toys, games, um, social experiences. Like all of those are are things that I make. And uh, and in in this for music, it's really all of doing all of these things in the service of music. So making a new instrument to make music in a different way, or that, or, or generating sounds that we otherwise would not be able to, would not have, except through the intervention of a computer. So it's not so much necessarily only computer-generated music, but it's kind of using computer in like really the broadest sense possible to, to help us make music in existing in, in new ways. Could you talk a little bit more about the intersection between technology and music, how, how exactly uh, this process goes through for you? Sure. So some of the things we, for example, use computer science, or in this case, we just just write a lot of code. I write a lot of code, and you know, when, what does that result in? Well, it might result in like an app. For example, you know, I can even give you a quick demo of this. Um, this is Ocarina, and I'm I'm on my iPhone. I'm gonna play by blowing to my phone. So that's an app on my phone. I'm blown to the microphone. I'm using the multi-touch screen to control pitch. Vibrato is controlled by how much I tilt the phone. And, uh, and in the same app, you can listen to other people blown to their phones from around the world. So here, let me see. let's see. Here is someone from Southern California. Here's Gizmo from London. I believe they're trying to play the Legend of Zelda theme song. At least those are the first few notes. 
Nope, now they're playing something else. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so that's one of the kinds of instruments that I make. But also, like for example, my, my dissertation here at Princeton when I was a graduate student here was, was called, well, Chuck is a programming language for basically for computer music. Um, and uh, so Chuck is basically like, I mean, I designed this programming language so that I myself and others can actually use this as a tool to generate sound, but also to map physical interaction, like input into kind of into sound, and in, in, and actually create instruments based on this model. So that was one of the tools we used here in the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, uh, and then when I started the Stanford Laptop Orchestra, you know, we still use it as one of the tools. So it's, it's a lot of what I do in, in really at the intersection of music and technology is tool building. Right, you're you're I'm making things that help people like make music. So let's talk more about the laptop orchestra. So you helped create it at Princeton, and then when you went to Stanford, you you founded the laptop orchestra there. Um, so I think to a lot of people, a laptop orchestra sounds like a pretty <laughs> uh, foreign concept, right? So can you explain what a laptop orchestra is and what a member of the laptop orchestra does? Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, the laptop orchestra, at least in the sense that we think of it today, is it really be began here at Princeton. And uh, professors Dan Truman and my then PhD advisor Perry Cook. Now Dan and Perry have, since me graduating, have become kind of life mentors to me. So I, I think of them as like kind of yeah, always my teachers. And they're the ones that like really instantiated the Princeton laptop orchestra. And I was very happy to have been a part of that instantiation and in helping to figure out. What it is and what it teaches, and how to teach it. Uh, but what the laptop orchestra is is just an ensemble of computers, humans, and uh, very importantly, kind of these special speaker arrays that we've built. Uh, actually, that Dan and Perry have been researching for many years before like Plork even started. Uh, at Stanford, we actually built ours out of IKEA salad bowls. So there's like different ways you can do this, but these speaker arrays usually always resemble, at least in the laptop orchestra, kind of these hemispherical domes, kind of like the top of R2-D2, but with speakers, like six speakers. Um, and the idea there is that sound that's being generated by the computer and that's really, you know, potentially played or interacted uh, with by the human players, they come out of these special speaker arrays. And those are supposed to sound more like acoustic, how traditional acoustic instruments make sound, emanate sound, like not through a PA system that comes from around you, but rather from like almost like a point source, like a physical artifact that's making sound. So if you were to play like a ukulele or violin, you know, the sound naturally comes from the artifact. Um, so in a way, the laptop orchestra is trying to make, like really trying to make an ensemble of laptops and humans, but also pay very specific attention to the way that sound is actually treated. And that changes completely the way you would think about how to make instruments. And if the instruments are different, then the music you make with those instruments are gonna be different. So like really from this specific attention to sound, uh, the medium affords a whole, I think a whole new set of possibilities for music making. So you just mentioned how when you change the creation of instruments that changes the music itself completely. Have you had any backlash from music enthusiasts 
enthusiasts who are more held on to the traditional type of music, how people would create music. And I guess when people think about algorithms and computers and music, you immediately jump to this sort of dystopian future <laughs> and, and they, they would say, I hate that. We've got to stop that. Well, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I would say actually music and technology has, has gone hand in hand like for kind of as long as for throughout human history, right? I mean, like any musical instrument is, is a use of technology, the violin, the piano. Like at some point, these were considered new cutting edge instruments. We think of them now, we kind of take them for granted as the instruments, but at some point, these, these were new instruments. Um, I think what's different here is that, you know, the computer is kind of one of the, maybe the technology kind of of our time, because it's, it's a really unique type of technology compared to, say, like vibrating strings, vibrating columns of air, which have enabled kind of, you know, other instruments that we, that we, we continue to have today. But the computer is a technology, like, it's a technology that's programmable. And so you can use this technology to fashion other technologies. Um, and that, the nature of the technology is very different, you know, partly due to that reason. So I, I think, so, so have, is there backlash? I mean, I think, sure, but it's really, the way to probably think about it is that there's a really diverse way of responses, of reactions to this. Um, for example, like for Ocarina on the iPhone, when I, when I made this, I was like, oh man, am I gonna really like anger like people who currently play like traditional clay or you know ocarinas and are they going to be like wow what is this abomination of my instrument but no like we in that case it was like overwhelmingly positive they're like wow that's so cool that you took my favorite instrument and you, you made the iphone into that instrument and in fact i still have people coming up to me saying hey Actually, like that was my f the first app I ever downloaded, and there are Ocarina players, a few of them anyway. That's like that was the reason I got an iPhone. You know, this is like 10 years ago. It's like so I can I can play Ocarina on the phone now. Now that's so. But then yes, people are worried. It's like wow, is this are the instruments we're making like, is this going to supplant? Is this some kind of usurp kind of existing musical practices, existing musical instruments? And uh, I suppose like. In theory, maybe it could, but actually, I think it's—I don't think of the world as having like a you know a, an upper bound on how much music can be made or how many instruments can exist at any given time. It's not a zero-sum thing. It's not like, oh, now I have a new instrument, we got to take another instrument away. And actually, in fact, in chapter two of Artful Design, I address exactly this question. It's like, hey, well, you know, computer music instruments—is this going to just replace us? Can replace musicians? But no, I mean, we are building tools for people to express themselves because that's, at the end of the day, kind of really what we're after. Um, and, you know, it's, to be honest, I think if people are playing less music now in a traditional sense, I think, I don't know if it's computer music, that's the really the main culprit. Like, in terms of what people are doing instead of, say, like, learning a traditional instrument, it's... It's probably like they're online, they're watching videos, they're, they're watching Netflix, playing League of Legends, Minecraft, I don't know, what have you. Like this, it's really like we live at a time where there's so many things that are interesting and are like kind of competing for our attention. And I think as much as anything, 
the aggregate of, of that is probably much more of a threat to kind of any kind of just people making music and, and anything musical. So for me, like, uh, I think the computer really is just like a new medium for exploring kind of what, how, well, what new kinds of music can we make and what are new kinds of ways that we can make them. So you treat computers as a medium. It's just something musicians could in the future use to create new music. But what if somebody say uh, computers and algorithms and especially like machine learning, those stuff could not only be a medium, but agent themselves, right? So mm -hmm. instead of you the, as the musician use computer to program uh, some music, you just hit a button and the computer itself would just write a music for you. How, how do you sort of consider this sort of phenomenon? Right, so that's a really that's a really interesting question. In fact, I think this this question of kind of really nearly fully automated generation of music through like AI, through machine learning, right? Like, I think this has actually bring up all kinds of questions about like what what is music, what is art. Like, it really kind of depends on how you think about these terms. And, and I think there's not a single answer as to, like, well, can, can machines make interesting music? I think it depends on what you mean by music and what you mean by interesting. And it also depends on kind of the function you think that music ought to serve. Um, you know, if I need, I don't know, like, background music or elevator, generate music generated for, the, for an elevator in a building. Yeah, I can, I, maybe I want to have an algorithm that I, that's just generating <laughs> interesting elevator music. That's a function. But if I want music that's like, that really tries to understand like who, what I'm about at, at a moment in my life. And I think I would have to then consider if a machine generated that, what does that really mean to me? That's not to say that that's you know, that what machine is generated isn't interesting. It's, I, I think the meaning is different because if I know that where it's coming from. Because so in those two cases, you see that, like, you know, there, there are different ways to think about this single question. In fact, I would offer that on this question of machine-generated music is that it's not, there's not a single answer. In fact, I don't know if we know how to ask the right questions just yet about, you know, if we... You know, there's a case, yeah, you envision there's a big red button, you hit it, boom, comes out a piece of music, and, uh, and you're like, that's a cool piece of music I would listen to. Like, so there are cases where I think that actually serves a purpose. Um, there are other cases where, you know, like, you would, to the, the music that really matters to each of us, the music that makes us in a way. Like, if you think about that, and you also think about, like, the, the, the act of making music, right? Like when you, for example, when I, when I play me, I, when I play music, like let's say I'm strum, I'm playing my guitar at home. You know, I'm not practice, I'm not playing this to produce music necessarily for others or even for myself. I'm playing the instrument for the sheer intrinsic joy of playing that instrument. And it's like it's it's actually the word plays exactly the right word here is that I am playing. I'm not worried about what I'm resulting in. I'm worried about the moment, about what I'm doing. And that brings me kind of just, just, like, just joy, right? Um, and so in that case, music making becomes kind of a process, uh, more than just the end result. And that's something like if I could just have a, I could write an algorithm that generates music, that wouldn't give me that same kind of meaning as if I could just go play the music. But yet there might be times where I might want a, 
a button that generates music, and then there are things in between. The things where like I don't have one big red button, I have a lot of control, like interfaces, with a back end, with like a deep learning algorithm that's that step by step the the algorithm and me are kind of going back and forth. And the algorithm's asking me, hey, I've generated this little little bit of music. How do you like it? I'm like, yes, yeah, that's mostly what I was thinking, but how would you change it in this way? And you can kind of imagine a dialogue between me and the computer. Now that's yet another way to think about machine assisted kind of music creation. And there's no single answer to like, is this art? Is this good? Is this bad? I think, well, first I'll say it really depends on what what you're trying to get out of it. And in certain cases, like the full automation may be, may be the thing to do. Again, elevator, autom- like non-repeating really elevator music, you know, that's interesting. That's, that's actually quite a fascinating problem to like music we would, like, we would not want to do, be without. Like and how do we, to music making, to semi-automated ways of making music. So from there, you can see that there's actually a wide gradient of how we can think about computers the generation of music. Right. And that's interesting because Google has a division, AI division mm-hmm. called Magenta that's yes. focused on making music and art. And I think they are much less focused on generating music by the computer alone, but actually on building tools that allow musicians to collaborate with the AI to create. Sort yeah. of like something where uh, the AI generates some music and then the musician generates some music. And so that, you know, that kind of collaboration is, is magical in a way. I think. It is. So. Yeah. And I, I know the Magenta folks quite well. Yeah. yeah. No, they're right, right down the street as it were from, from, oh, that's <laughs> from okay. where we are. And we, we're kind of, uh, yeah, we're friends. And uh, so, but yes, I think, I think the question is, do you want to think of the computer as kind of this like magic, like this Oracle, or do you want to think of it as a tool? Right. And, and I think the difference is with a tool, you can learn it rather than having it only learn you, right? You want to learn, like that, to me, like the instrument is something, a great instrument is something that you can get better at and get better at like making it, like kind of using it in a way that can express who you are. And that's the craft of of really any instrument is you learn that instrument, but also how the instrument can like express you, right? And, And when you can kind of connect between like, oh, this is what I wanted to say, to actually be able to say it with the instrument. Like when you can connect that, then you've, you, you're getting better at that instrument, right? So, um, and that is not just instruments, but all tools, things that we would call tools, right? And uh, I mean, like programming, like programming in a specific language, that's a tool, like getting good at programming in Java, C++, Python. Uh, C sharp. Now that's using Unity. Now these are tools, and kind of learning them is you're learning them as a craft, so that you can realize what it is you wanted to realize. Now that's, in that sense, an instrument in a programming language is really no different when we think of it, but both as as tools. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just pivoting a little bit, you just recently come out with this incredible book called Artful Design, where you take on this idea of design and what it means to design well. So can you speak a little bit about, about how you define design and also how you define good design? Sure. Uh, I mean, I, it's a working definition, right? I think it's, it's like saying, like, what's, you know, what is design or what is good design is, is about as challenging as it's like, what is good art? What is great art? But we can, we can try, right? We, it, it's, 
it's not easy. So working definition from Artful Design for design is that it's, it's a kind of alignment, it's an act of alignment. That's twofold. You're aligning, we design when we, when we shape the world to align with our notion of what's useful on one hand, uh, and also what we think is good or beautiful or just or simply the way things ought to be. That's actually the first principle from, from chapter one in, in Artful Design is that design is an act of alignment. Um, and so anytime we're shaping the world around us, fashioning technology, like you know, making a table, building a chair, uh, actually making policy, all of these things are acts of design. They're acts of alignment. And why do we do them? Well, they're all there to serve specific purposes. But anytime you're shaping technology and you're trying to speak to a purpose, how you do that, I think, cannot help but reflect also something of your value. Like, what is it that you really hold dear? Right? And, and, and so design is always this duality about being useful, but being useful in like a cool, awesome and, and, a, and I think a way that speaks to to who you who you are and how you want the world to be so that's the that's the, I think the duality I think of design that's at least that's a working definition right. and as for what it means to design well that's a very that's a that's even more <laughs> like a, and that's I mean the book is like 488 pages and uh, much of it is it's I mean it's it's really these three questions like what it what is design what does it mean to design well and what does it mean to design ethically, right? And those are the three questions, and it's throughout the, the book. And so to, I think to design well, first of all, is to really, on, some, on one hand, is to understand the medium you're working with and really take advantage of what the medium is. If you're working with wood versus working with code, versus work, working with sequen, words in sequence, like writing, right? These are all mediums, and you're, you're, as, as long as you're shaping these mediums into into something that has like a intention behind it you're designing now then but then to do this well on one hand becomes again a, a, a matter of craft right the craft of writing well is how you can put words in sequence but not in just any old sequence but in a sequence that not only communicates but also communicates in a way that it's, it's rhetoric it's not just saying it's not just about what you say right it's, it's so much communication is about how you say it. And so again, that's that duality servicing again. So when you can really manage that duality, you, I think you are beginning to really design well, just like, again, like playing an instrument, you it's, it's a craft. Um, and no different than code, you know, I, I, and then, but then that's, that's, I would say that's the first order answer to designing well is that you, you understand the medium and you, you have a, like a craftsperson's approach to, to using it to achieve what you want to do. But then there are different dimensions you got to consider. It's like, well, does things, this is achieve my purpose, but in achieving my purpose, how does that make people feel? What does it mean to people? How does it affect people socially in terms of how they, if they ever use this, this product, like a, let's say it's a networked video game, how does that, what kind of social interactions are you really engendering by, by putting together this game in the way that you put to the game together? And then and there's kind of what I would call the moral ethical dimension of like, is the thing that you, you're designing actually like, is there a social conscience? Is there a personal conscience behind it? And I would argue that 
if you if if you design something that's really clever and even very useful in some context, but it hasn't spoken to this moral ethical dimension, or that it either harms people or like kind of not really treat people right, you know, I would argue you have not designed well. Um, so designing well then becomes this very, I think, expansive. Like it's just the same thing as like how do you make good art? <laughs> That's a very like non-specific question, but it's a good question to ask nonetheless. Because I think for how do you do anything well? Right. That's the. So you were just mentioning about this moral ethical dimension. You need to put a sense of conscience into whatever you create because people might not not often be aware of the social impacts of their creations. So. When you design the the Chuck music uh, programming language, and when you experiment with the intersection between art and tech, uh, do you ever consider whether your creations ha could potentially have any negative impact on on our society, or what's sort of the internal reflection process like, and what's your conclusion? So uh, that's, I think about it all the time. But I, I would say like yeah, any, anything that we build, I think could have potentially negative impact. But for me, like the 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 ethics of building things actually goes far beyond whether it has negative impact or not. Like that's absolutely important. The things that's probably a first order thing to think about, like and to reflect on, and to continue to reflect on. Like it just you know as you build before you build the thing, figure out what you build as you're building it. After the thing is out in the world, you you, you can't stop reflecting on this. You gotta take you gotta slow down and actually think about these things. But I think. The question of ethics and, and and building technology goes way beyond like is this thing hurting someone? That's 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 a, like a necessary condition, but I don't think it's sufficient, right? I think I think I would also like to ask like what does it actually do for people? How does it make people's lives better, right? So doing good is a, like a, I think the next the higher order goal than do no evil, right? Those are those are both I think important. <laughs> you gotta. Let's make sure you're doing no evil first, but then that's actually not enough. You got to say like, hey, what is this actually? How is this actually helping people to be better, uh, to flourish even? And is how does that help society flourish? And and beyond, you know, kind of this this imperative of how does this help me, the creator, flourish or help the the company flourish that's made a product, right? That that actually is already there. It's like oh, we're making this product, so it, like from a economic point of view we can flourish we can make a lot of money but are you, you know are you stopping to ask not only like you, know, you can't be like we're making money and this thing isn't hurting people done no i don't think i think that's not enough i think you also got to be like okay well we got to make money this thing's not going to hurt people but do we have a vision for how this is actually doing some good to be for people when it was what is that good and so this really arrives at for me ethics as like you know, first of all, is like do no evil. The second part is like how do we do good? But I think the question the artful design is posing is like how do we want to live with our technologies? What is the world we will want to want to live in, and how do the things we build fit into that world? And they help us align ourselves closer, even just by a little bit towards that world. So I think that's for me the the moral ethical dimension of design. It's not. It's way beyond like, what you know. Let's make sure we don't hurt people with. I mean, it's. I made a programming language, computer music. It's probably 
like on the scale of destruction is probably not that great compared to like I don't know like weapons to genetics to to social networks to AI to these things right these things have like I mean I made a, a computer music language and what is the worst thing that can people can do with it they could probably hurt their ears they I mean I also maybe I didn't make it as well as I could make it those are dangerous but really the question is does this help people make music in a way they they couldn't have otherwise and I, in that sense I, I think that's you know so for me like yeah deciding that I'm not really I don't think Chuck is killing anyone I don't, as far as I know, hasn't really physically injured anyone. I hope it hasn't mentally or aesthetically injured anyone. Um, but, uh, but I think the challenge there, again, goes back to designing well. Is It's a, a thing that just checks the boxes on not killing people, not hurting people, is, is good, but it might not be actually useful. So to be useful, you, it, again, it goes back to this question of quality. You know, does it... That does actually offer you something that no other tool can can give you. So you're speaking about how important it is to make the right use of technology. So for you, what do you believe is the fundamental purpose of technology in our lives? Uh, I mean, that's again a really great but really expansive question, right? I mean, <laughs> I, we can think of technology as as a very like a it could be no more human thing to 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 do is to, to fashion technology and to use technology. That's one, I would say it's one of our defining characteristics as, as humans is that we have tools. Like what is technology? That's actually, like that's, that's actually a pretty quick question if you really think about it. What is tech, how do we define technology, right? And, and actually if you try to find a synonym for the word technology, it's not that easy, right? If you think about it, like it's, I mean, maybe synonyms might be actually a tool or a technique. That's it. And what are those things? Well, I think in that sense, if it's a tool or technique, then its technology is here to kind of serve us, something that we use for our own purposes. But I think what we're realizing is that just shaping directly any kind of technology for a specific purpose, this has this boomerangs back and reflects and changes us as much as we change, te change technology. So, so does technology today accomplishes the, the, the purpose you sort of just mentioned and, and what's sort of your vision for how technology will continue to shape our lives? Will it be pushing us to a more dystopian future or will it be really helping us flourish as you mentioned? I mean, I think it, it you know, I think technology right now is like, it, it really depends, like how well is technology doing in, in, in that goal? You, it, it's, the answer is really depending on what you're looking at. Like, and I think different products and different uses of technology, I think are encountering varying levels of success. And success maybe for me is defined as like, yeah, does it help us flourish? You know, does, is, 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 but that, that comes to uh, another question, sort of the, it could be an ambiguity or vagueness when it comes to the standard, right? When you were saying, uh, does it help us flourish? Facebook could argue we really helped connect people together. Billions of people flourished mm -hmm. on, on our platform. Whereas there are also other people would criticize Facebook for saying, you know, you kind of fundamentally destroyed the civic connectedness <laughs> in, in, in our society. So right. you, you could have all sorts of different standards. Mm -hmm. And, and um, another example I could think about, you were just talking about weapons and genetics. I mean, this Chinese scientist 
He, who who did this whole genetics editing thing. I mean, he probably I don't know what his intention would be, but he could probably justify it with saying, "I'm contributing to humankind," and other people are saying, "No, no, you're not." So the standards could be relative there, right? Where where do you think there's sort of an absolute truth when it comes to our impact, whether it's good for society? I think it's honestly, I think it's neither absolute nor is it relative. And I think it's what I think what is at stake here is, like when Facebook says we're connecting the world, I think it needs to make an argument, not, and not just say it, right? I think what's at stake here is like, do we have, like the the critical ability to actually see in what ways is Facebook actually connecting the world, and is it really, what does it mean by connecting the world, to have like me and like kind of like. With like 300 other people I barely know on my on my friends list in Facebook, is that connecting me to these people, <laughs> right? So you stop to think about what they're claiming, and and having the critical ability to kind of say, well, that's your claim. Are you really doing this? You might find that there's a lot, that can be seen in any number of ways. So this is where like you know being able to 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 break down the actual quality of a design is absolutely essential. And you can't take it at what people tell you. Yeah, Facebook is going to tell you we're connecting the world, but like, talk about vague, right? Is that <laughs> in what way are you connecting the world? And again, you know, if if, if we look at kind of the in social interactions that's happening on Facebook, are those the kinds of social interactions we would want to have? And is that enough for us, as to for us to be considered connected? Right, and so I think, so I think your question is absolutely. But my answer to that is that there's not a single, like, there's. Is, I, for me, it's neither absolute because I think that's really hard to get at, nor is a relative, which is too much of a. It's a cop out to say it's relative. Everything's relative, but I think the hard thing is to make arguments that aren't that are are evidence to the extent it can be, and then that are thought through from multiple perspectives. Right. If I can offer you one more thought, is that like you know you can't. Some things are measurable. Some things are less measurable. Some things are quantifiable. Some things are less quantifiable. So you really have to kind of do your best with the nature of kind of the, the topic you're actually dealing with. And sometimes you can't. I can't mathematically or quantitatively prove to you that Facebook is not connecting the world. But I'm, I, I think I just made an argument that perhaps in my my definition, Facebook is not. Connecting me to the people I'm connected with, so-called, on Facebook, and if you find that argument interesting, then I think we can continue talking about it from that point of view. And that's just one point of view that I've offered. But I've I've made an argument as to whether Facebook is or is not connecting the world. And you can apply the same kind of critical kind of analysis to really any other company or product or you know use of technology more generally. Right, and I. I That's a really interesting point, and I also think that so, if there are like if, if you take Facebook and you take there are some examples. For example, there was a a huge flooding in in a city in South India two and a half years ago, and I think a lot of lives were saved because people posted like this. I'm on, you know I'm on I'm located here and the floods are high and and so that helped rescue efforts a lot. And so you talk about how okay maybe that in that case being connected and and having social media did good. Then you also see how there's like a spread of Hate speech and and misinformation on Facebook, and so the the 
I guess the point is that when you have, obviously, you know, uh, you need to analyze whether a company is actually doing something that it says it's doing. But in the case that it's doing, there's cases where it does both good and it does bad. Um, is, de is design sort of this constant process where you have to be aware of the bad it's doing and try to minimize that and design such that when society kind of says, oh, this is, you, you see that this is not working out, you, you design to avoid that and you design to maximize the good. So is design sort of this constant iterative process in that case or? It's, that's, that's, I mean, it really depends on how you, you really, your so-called optimization function in that case. It's like, what are you really optimizing? And one way could be to minimize bad and, and increase good. Um, on that point, it's like, but it's like, I think we have to actually understand the scale of things. If, I mean, since we're using poor Facebook, we're kind of just kind of using, it's a little too easy these days to kind of just <laughs> to go, go on it's Facebook. But, 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 but actually, you know, it, it's a good case study because it, it is, because it's so pervasive, right? And I would say, yeah, if, like, if there's like more than half a billion people on a platform, it better be able to do occasionally some good. Like, yes, you can use Facebook to, to, to help, you know, disaster relief or response. And Twitter and others have claimed that this is, and I, I don't dispute that. It's like, these are some cases where the medium actually is useful. But then have you added up the number of aggregated human hours spent on Facebook in the last 10 years? I have not, but I bet you that's a really astronomically big number. And that, where has that time gone? And you take the fraction of that that's actually like disaster relief or like some other social thing we would recognize be social good. We don't deny those, but is that like, you know, what fraction of this entire engagement of humanity with the single platform? And what are we getting from that? I think that's, I'm, this is the kind of question I think we are not asking. We kind of, it's easy for people to focus on specifics, right? And we, we say, hey, this case, it helped, but are people looking at the bigger picture of like, what is Facebook actually doing to us on a day-to-day -day basis? And, and the, the recent study that, that was published actually, actually was not yet published, but I believe it came from Stanford CEPR, kind of the, the Economic Policy Research Center, and I think New York Times picked up on this, and where they did a Facebook deprivation study. Um, and, and I think this, at this point, is still undergoing Formal peer review, but you know that they've the findings are, are out there, and they found that you know this is probably the largest Facebook deprivation study that's been conducted. Is that like people who were paid to not use Facebook seem to, on the whole, one did not um, they did not replace Facebook with another online thing. They, on the average, got an hour back in their day, every day. And they spent that hour actually in more physical kind of <laughs> manners, like hanging out with other human beings, like in person. Um, and, uh, and also a number of really fascinating, you know, kind of effects on kind of, of, of like Facebook deprivation on kind of like your awareness of kind of news, of current events, uh, but also kind of you know, how polarized you are, like likelihood to be politically kind of partisan. And it found that actually it's, it influences these things. So um, there actually are quantitative ways that people have tried to look at kind of like large scale, like what Facebook is actually doing to us. And I think that, that those are good questions. 
because I think it's it's like you know what again we're kind of like conveniently using just one particular company's product uh, in this case Facebook but I think it's 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 a fascinating case study of design I think what you were saying was absolutely fascinating how you said uh, you know you could potentially have a quantitative framework when it comes to those normative issues but what about um, the the idea of saying you know spending time doing music for example would be more meaningful than watching TV or, or Facebook. Do do you have a? I wouldn't say value proposition, but so is there sort of a value system around uh, the work you do and and the work you advocate a lot of other people to do that, that you'd say this would be a little bit more meaningful than others? Because I was I was actually interviewing the the director of McKinsey Global Institute, Jack Bugen, in this very same room last weekend, and he was saying how. You know, people people's working hours have drastically re reduced in in the past couple of decades, right? Like, maybe before you work eighty hours a week as a as a Dutch guy, and now you work like forty hours a week, but you still spend three hours a day watching TV. So, like, half of the time being freed up is actually you know being used to. He didn't really give sort of a normative judgment on whether it's good or bad, but should we sort of encourage people to say? Yeah, you gotta like read more books, like <laughs> pursue more intellectual pursuits rather than using. But 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 once we doing that, we become the more arbitrary. People could say, stop using this elitist view, looking at us and, and telling us what we gotta do with our time. I just wanna use Facebook. I just wanna watch Netflix, and it it's yeah, it's a waste of time for you. But it but it, I just do it because I have free time now. So. It's complicated. I mean, like there are there are products that w that have been engineered specifically to kind of uh, engage you purely for the purpose of that your engagement can be monetized. In those cases, those things are in, including Facebook. I would argue, is is was designed not for not for any other purpose really, other than to uh, monetize our time and our our attention. And if that is the goal, then the products is engineered to kind of in in a way like shape your behavior so that you fit that that goal in which case yeah i think we humans i argue are susceptible we're not like invulnerable to like you know you dangle like i don't know a donut in front of me i'm gonna want to eat it even though i know eating that donut may not be in my best interest long term but i want to eat that donut right so um it's, it's, but your broader question is a really good one is i like you know the, I think it's a subtle thing. You, it's, it depends on how you treat the things you value. Like if I, I can tell you without telling others that you should do this or do that, I, can, I personally believe that making music is a value. That reading more books in general is a value. Reading is a value. And these things are valuable, right? And, but how, to actu how do I actually like kind of map that my own value system onto the world in a way that actually respects also the I would say the dignity and in the really the diversity of others. Maybe people don't. So that's a tricky thing, and you've articulated the question really well. So you know how do I how do I think about this? One is well, I build products that actually has my value in there and actually makes an argument for that value. Like I don't I didn't design Ocarina because like it was like a perceived need for there to be an app where you have to blow into the phone to make music. That was not like, it was not like I took a survey and people were like, we need to blow into, 
I need to blow into my phone and make music and be able to listen to other people blowing into their phones around. No, this is made out of a value. It was designed around a value that music making does a person good and that this, tech, this, this platform of this mobile, this app-based smartphone can be a goodly democratizing kind of a, a technology to kind of to reach people. And if, if I can just make the app, make a convincing argument within the app, like this is fun and it, and it, and it helps you to understand something about you, something that you might want to do that you otherwise might, think of, might not think about. I think I've kind of, in a way, a more subtle way, kind of at least put my value out there as a value proposition, if you will, right? As in the form of the way, not just what I've designed, but the way I've designed it. It's, it's, I think it's a, it's a difference. It's neither like trying to like dictate people. You, everyone, you have to make music because that's good. I don't, think, I don't want to do that. In fact, I don't think that's going to do much good. People, at the end of the day, truly, I think, want to choose. They want to feel that, that they are agents, that they have a choice. And so what you want to do is to kind of, it's rhetoric. Design is rhetoric in this sense. It's, it's, you, it does no good to, to dictate. But also you, like, kind of becoming a hermit value-wise and not engaging with the world with the way you think about how, what's good in the world is also, I think, too much in the other extreme. One is perhaps excess, one is perhaps deficient. Is there a golden mean between the extremes? And that's, I think, for me, what design, what artful design is trying to get at. It's like a golden mean really between too much and too little. So I, right? and, and so I, you know, I do that by making the argument in the way I've designed things. And hopefully Chuck is designed in a way where people using it is both finding it useful and kind of fun to use. And through that sense of play, that fun, people are programming more to make music. It's a subtle thing. I think there's, again, it's between the absolutes and between a purely relevant, you know, kind of a relative type of a system. There's an argument, I think, that can be made. And there's a way to make that argument thoughtfully and respectfully to, uh, to kind of each of us. Right. And I think it's, an, it's incredible how you've been able to kind of take these great ideals for design and translate that into, into real world things that people can use. Um, but, you know, kind of looking at, since we're talking about Facebook and, and companies like this, um, it, is it difficult to reconcile these ideals for design that you've um, kind of had in a world that's very profit driven and is very focused on acquiring customers and where companies are often beholden to shareholders' interests rather than the interests of humanity? Um, how how do the ideals, how can the ideals of design sort of coexist and survive in, in, this, in this world? I'll, I'll start by noting that shareholders, investors, are also part of humanity, right? So in a way, I think when you design something, like at some level, philosophically, you're designing, you are designing for all of us, all shareholders, all stakeholders within, within a corporation, for example. They're no less human than anyone else. And so... From that basis, I think designing for humanity isn't as lofty or as abstract or as, as indeed difficult as it may sound. Because it's, it's not like we have robot overlords that are, that are investing in these companies that, <laughs> that are demanding a return on investment for them. No, these are also human beings like the rest of us. And so I think part of this is to tap into what's actually common to all of us. 
And but but your point is well taken is that there is a strong, absolutely strong economical economic imperative here that's driving design, that's driving the shaping of technology. So in a way then decision making becomes this balance, again, between extremes. A balance between economic sustainability and actually putting some actual intrinsic goodness out there into the world. And this actually may mean like, you know, you may not be making like as much money as you otherwise would make, but you may be making still a, a boatload of money. Like, are you okay with that? And should you be okay with that? Now, I don't, I, can't, I don't have a blanket answer for that. It probably depends on the situation. But I am worried if the answer is always no, if we're leaving money on the table, then we're not doing our job. I, I want to push, push back um, on, on that just by a little bit because this question Please. just came up to my mind when you were talking absolutely agree with how you think products should be both economically sustainable but also with a sense of intrinsic goodness but would you say that you're a little bit too harsh on on the creators or for example i'll give you an example so um we invited the sec chairman jay clayton to come to campus to speak last spring and he came over he gave this whole talk about cryptocurrency and he's like we're still trying to figure it out and i went up to him after the lecture i was like but you are the chairman of SEC. You, you're the policymaker. You're one of, one of the most powerful people on earth. How do you not have the, the wisdom and, and strength to, to come up with a solution, right? We put you in that position to come up with solutions, not to say, well, I was trying to figure things out. And he was saying to me, he's like, policymakers are human beings as well. Like powerful people from the president to business tycoons, we're all just humans and, and we have flaws and we can't think of everything. And I guess same argument I guess Facebook could be making right now. He's like, we're really trying to do good, but just it's just hard for us to figure it out. So would you say I'm, that? I'm, it's a great question. I'm right? going to call Facebook's BS on we're trying to do good right now, right here and now. All right? Okay, okay. I'm, I'm not so even going to. No Facebook, so, other people. How, what, what if they just say? But that's a great I'm, question. I'm trying to figure out, but I just can't find both economically sustainable and interesting. Oh, my God. If, if every single tech innovation in the world has to be all well thought out and perfect, then we'd probably have only a few left, right? I mean, I, I don't think I'm being too harsh at all. I think that the argument has, I mean, that if you're going to undertake this thing, then it is, it depends on what you think is your duty. I would argue it is the duty of every tech, of every engineer, every designer, at every level. If you have any say in any way a product is made, then you, I think, have a, something of a moral obligation to the rest of us. And it's not a matter of being harsh or not. It's simply, uh, this is an argument I'm making, is that that, because, you know, when you're designing something, you're designing for all of us. That might use your, anyone that touches the product, right? And, and if it's no less harsh than demanding for a face-to-face -face interaction to be in a certain way. Like, I, I would like for you not to punch me in the face for no reason. Like, is that too harsh to ask of you? I would like for you not to harm me without a good cause. Like, is that too harsh? I would argue no. I think this is just, we, we, we wouldn't say that's too harsh in a face-to-face -face setting. Why is that any different in, like, in a product setting, in like a company, it, when companies make decisions on how a product is made? Why, I don't, so in that sense, I'm, I don't think I'm being too harsh when I see the moral ethical frameworks for a company as being no different, should be maybe no different than face-to-face. -face. Like, that's actually the argument in, in, in really the later parts of artful design is that when the, the choices we make as designers, as shaping, shapers of technology, they are tantamount to taking action in real life. 
because it is real life we're designing for. And if that is the case, then why are we not bound by the same exact moral ethical frameworks we already bind ourselves to? I'm not asking that we invent a new moral ethical system, framework for technology. I'm not. I'm simply saying use the one you already got face to face. This is what, what we should strive to do. But you see, that's not a, it's, it's a weird, it's a meta-normative meta kind of thing. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm simply saying adopt what you already do to a wider, a more broader sense. Right? That's, that's what I'm saying. I, I think, it, it, I think by, your, by, your, by your chuckle, I'm going to guess you, you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I, I, I was just laughing how meta-normative, I mean, just every time I talk with a professor or, or a policymaker, there's always some new phrase that is so intellectual that I, that I learn. It's like, I'm, I'm going to use that word in the future, meta-normative. I may have just made that one up. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just, just kind of pivoting, but kind of off that, um, I mean, you're speaking about how engineers should really design with, with good in mind and with this moral ethical framework and, and sort of think about societal issues. Um, how should these values be taught at a university level? Um, should engineers be taking, be required to take classes in the humanities and social sciences? Uh, what is your vision for, for that kind of education? I think it can actually be taught or maybe meta-taught <laughs> as it were. As in you can't, it's like ethics. It's a tricky thing to teach. Because if you try to go like, like directly, like just Firehose style, like here's ethics, here are here is moral philosophy, here are like you know, it, it, no, it's actually it doesn't really work. It's because it, it's like the people that already understand how important ethics are, like kind of are the people are people who don't really need the the people who at least need this kind of education because already have an awareness of it. And the people that don't think about ethics are like, wait, you're telling me what I can and cannot do? That's, I, I don't know who likes, who, no one likes being told what not to do, right? And that's, that's, all, that's, that's me included. So I think it goes back to this question that we talked about earlier. It's, it's actually a question of choice and agency. You have to teach this without depriving agency from the people that are trying to learn about ethics. So fire hosing, like, like, <laughs> All, what's right or wrong, I think, is not going to work. But having someone taking, like, hey, go take a moral philosophy course and understand what are the different ways of thinking about morality and ethics are out there and form your own kind of reflections on how these models of, of like, actually are related to, like, concrete happenings, products, actions, decisions that are, that are actually happening around us. Like in really concrete sense, and you can, you can take like I mean through the lenses. I don't know. You can, you can take a utilitarian lens and look at kind of how companies maybe are trying to optimize, or a, a deontological lens on kind of a principle-based approach on how what is the right thing to do, and let that be the guiding action. And how and also you can see when when people are not doing that, or people are only focused on rational self-interest and optimizing for that, regardless of principles. And then you can take, say, a virtue ethics approach and to say, like, well, is this thing actually helping? I mean, this is actually helping us flourish, right? And is this a virtuous design? Like, what is virtuous design? Right? Is it a design that, well, certainly serves its function well, is a functional excellence, and maybe one that also serves 
our function, our higher function, our higher needs, well, which is maybe for humans to want to flourish, whatever that may mean to each person. So even by taking, like, you know, kind of by obtaining these different things to think with in, say, like a, a philosophy course, engineers can be better, absolutely better equipped to make decisions. But also, you know, it's just interesting just to know in, in and of itself. So, so speaking of education, Arjun was just talking about your work in Stanford, but what really um, compels me to ask you about is that you were born and raised in Beijing, China, until you moved to the U.S. at nine years old. I'm also born and raised in Beijing, and my parents used to take me to saxophone classes and stuff, but I never developed the, the talent in either music or computer science or this sort of mi mindset like you. So I'm very curious to hear your early um, education, early childhood experience, as well as uh, what do you think um, your work could eventually, how it could trickle down to societies like China where uh, we don't see too many top quality design. We don't see too much discourse on uh, more ethical dimensions of design. Uh, how do we make sure that the high-level discourse you're having in Stanford could trickle down um, to a third-tier city in China? It's a very big question again. We ask very big questions here. So please feel free to, to say anything you feel like. That is a very tricky question, a, a huge question, but a great question. It's like, uh, you know, I mean, Beijing is still my hometown. So I still feel like, I still consider, even though I've, I've, I've really not lived in China f since well, like 30 plus years now, right? <laughs> And I want, I want China to be well as much as I want anywhere to be well. In fact, I want everywhere to be well, right? And, but I do worry about China because <laughs> um, I think for any number of reasons, but, but I think for one, I would say there is, I think the economic imperative is so strong there like on a personal societal level that it, it it even more than here it tends to can overshadow some of the more the richness the other richness of life the life may have to offer kind of the aesthetic dimensions beyond that of kind of you know but I, I don't know but maybe things are always changing in China too and there's it's really hard to apply any single like blanket kind of statement about China but I, I think one place I think how you know to the extent any of the way that we think about design is is useful or interesting or good or helpful i i like to always think of the way to to, to get the ideas out there is actually start from a point of commonness you know uh, and by the way you know this is probably from me being a computer music person is that i think there are things that actually make us like all no different than one another you know i think when we talk about actually diversity we're actually not talking about how different our people are different we're at some level we're talking about how we're all no different we all are mortal we all have i think a favorite song we are all moved by i think authentic moral action that we see in other people like it does not matter like your background it doesn't matter your political affiliation it does not matter your nationality. Like these things do not matter at some core human level. And that is the realm where I think art like, is really always trying to tap into. It's trying to get at, you know, 
be below, but connected to this layer of rationality, of, of reason, if you will. There's this like underlying common humanity that I think that binds like every single person on, on that's ever existed, right? Um, and I think speaking to that dimension is is a good place to start. And so, you know, I mean, in a way, like making products that make people feel con- connected in maybe not, definitely not in the way that Facebook <laughs> claims to connect people, but in a way that connects people at this human level. I think is is a way to to get things out there. Not by telling people that it's good, but actually building products that show people this is cool and this is who we are, right? And so building products that help us flourish, that make us us more playful. Um, So so would you say that it kind of fundamentally comes back to a a product, something more concrete? Because... For example, I, I, I love art history, I travel to museums, and I always thought, you know, China needs more art. Uh, there needs to be more awareness. But I also sort of realized there are more imperative um, economic issues that need to be addressed. People are still, you know, hungry in a lot of places. So, um, so that's why I turned to policy, turned to study yeah. economics. And you didn't just purely do music, you do computer science. You use yeah. very concrete ways to, to, to help people. So, would you say that even though you have this ideal, this artistic vision, you would still need to translate into something more? But I think that's exactly what I mean. Is that like, right. I mean, let's take public policy. You know, policy is design, and all design, in some sense, is policy making. You're setting the constraints in place, and and by the way you've set up these constraints, or you set up the system, you've set up the policy, that's going to change how people behave. That's the whole point of having policy. And you could stop there and say, you know, my job as a policymaker is done because I've... But if you take it one step further beyond behavior, in the aggregate, you get... You result in some net overall way of life, a life way. Like, that is kind of, I think, the hidden goal beyond behavior, right? So when you're designing a product, it doesn't actually matter what you're designing. A product or a policy, or something else. Which you're, you, I would argue you can't stop at the behavior. You gotta, you gotta think all the way up to like, what is the way of life I would want to have? I would want to, to help people achieve. And what is the way of life they would have? I gotta try to figure that out, that they really would have. And how can I shape policy to indirectly speak to that, to that vision? Not my vision necessarily, but the vision that, as best I can tell, what other people in my vision like. Again, at this lowest level, not the vision of like I want to make a lot of money and have a nice house, but like I want to feel fulfilled. I want, I want good relation. I want great relationships with the people around me, my friends, my family. I want to, you know, these are like there's some common things that I think all of us want in different ways, but they are common, and it's, I think when the shaping of, say, policy can think all the way up to what that might mean at that level and let that trickle back or feedback into how you, the ways you set that policy in motion, then I think that's, that actually is artful design. The, the, the more I talk to you, the more I feel like you're kind of a free spirit guy. <laughs> in the sense that you, you're very yeah. chill, you, you're very thoughtful, insightful, you know 
uh, such a wide range of disciplines and, and you write things, create things that I don't think normal people could just create. It's, it's not like an academic sitting in the office doing data work for 30 years and they would just write something like, like, like your book. Uh, so I'm very curious in how, how your mind functions, how your brain functions. <laughs> how do you think this uh, thing Barely, is, uh, <laughs> slowly. What, what, what's going on in there? Like how, every, every time, every once in a while, I would, I would meet someone like, like you that's just so refreshing and, and, and different. Thank you. you well, likewise, it's been a really wonderful conversation <laughs> with you. I really appreciate the questions and your thoughtfulness. <laughs> I, I don't know what, what's going on up in here. Um, <laughs> I do think we're fashioned by the things we love, right? So I grew up reading comic books, playing video games, but also just being fascinated by these things. And I think, like, one thing that I don't know why that I've, I've always done this, but I realized I always like to slow down and think about how things are made. Like, if it's a video game, and, and how things I like are made. Like, if I see a video game and I play a video game that's just, like, awesome, like, as I'm playing, I can't help but think about what make, why do I like this so much, right? And what makes it a good video game? What makes it a virtuous video game? Um, if, an, if a can opener works in an unexpectedly efficient and pleasurable way, like something's mundane every day as a can opener, I'm going to stop and think about, like, why is that? What do I like about this thing so much? You know, on one hand, it's, it's like trying to understand myself of, like, what are my preferences, right? And why do I prefer this doing this game versus that kind of game mechanic? Or why do I prefer driving this car versus this other car? Like, you know, why do I prefer this chair to that chair? What do I like about this chair that I really prefer? I don't know. I feel like that's, that's something I naturally just always want to do. And I think in retrospect, that has actually helped me become a good designer is that I I absolutely want to understand in myself for me this question of quality um, so the name of our show is policy punchline and usually wh whenever there's a scholar policymaker when we talk about some policy related issues I always ask them at the end of the show uh, what's your policy punchline so um, we haven't touched too much on policy so feel free to elaborate on, on your thoughts on society, you know, tech and arts policies, but, you know, or whatever other field you may feel compelled to address. What, what's your punchline here? Like policy is design, and all design at some level is policy. And, uh, and how you shape the policy, I think, ripples all the way out to, to kind of how we want to live. And for me, it's how do we want to live with our technologies? So I don't know if that's a punchline, but that's, I think that's kind of what, I think that's kind of what we've been talking about. Of course. That's been such a, such a pleasure talking to you, Professor Wang. This Likewise. is just amazing conversation. Yeah. Um, so this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Twitter at Policy Punchline, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, and please go buy... Professor Wang's book, Artful Design, Technology in Search of the Sublime. Um, it's published by Stanford University Press, I imagine. And, and uh, absolutely wonderful read. I have not read it, but I will recommend it because this conversation has been so great. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for having me. Awesome.
You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.